0: You're on community radio two double X ninety eight point three. You're listening to Behind the Lines in the studio. We have Blake Wilson from the National Health Co-op. How are you, Blake?
1: Good, thanks, Cody.
0: The National Health Co-op. It's um, a fairly self-explanatory name. What is the National Health Co-op?
1: Great. Well, uh, like the name suggests, we're actually a cooperative healthcare organisation. Um, So what we actually do is provide primary healthcare services. We're now the largest provider in Canberra. And as a cooperative, we're completely member-owned. So uh, the community owns their own solution to healthcare.
0: Yeah, you started off in uh, in West Belconnen. So that, that's my old neck of the woods. That is. <laughs> and yeah, what uh, what was it that sparked the co-op to form in the first place?
1: Yeah, it, it really came out of the fact that um, there was a massive shortage of doctors, and realistically, there still is in Canberra, but particularly in the Charnwood area. Um, a lot of doctors had left the area; they'd retired, they'd moved to larger, you know, um, big practices and it just meant that people couldn't access a doctor and they certainly couldn't access a bulk billing doctor. So the local community decided that uh, enough was enough and uh, together with a bunch of um, local organisers, the local chemist, um, a bunch of you know actors in that space decided to get together and work out a solution. Eventually formed the National Health Co-op.
0: Yeah, right, right. So that was, what, in 2010, I
1: believe? 2010 is when we first opened the doors of our first clinic, which is our Charnwood Clinic. Um, still going strong and uh, certainly providing a lot of services still.
0: Yeah, that looks like your your biggest sort of, I don't know, what do you call them, campuses, locations?
1: <laughs> uh, we, we just like to call them clinics, so clinics, it's, yeah. it's a nice nice name for them. Um, but yes, it's certainly one of our bigger ones. Um, we've got a number of big ones now, which is, is great. But uh, out of there, we've got um, you know, a handful of GPs, we've got psychologists, we've got dietitians. a bunch of different allied services, pathology, all those kind of things. Uh, all there, all fully bog-billed. Uh,
0: so your, your sort of goals, what are, what are the actual goals that you've...
1: Yeah, the, the, <clears throat> the, the goals of the National Health Cup are actually really quite clear. And um, we've spent a fair amount of work, you know, the board's uh, thought about it a lot, a lot of consultation with the community, and and it really comes from our our grassroots of we are there primarily to solve healthcare. So we're there to make sure that there is uh, access to available healthcare for all Australians. Um, And what that really means is uh, we will work with communities to provide solutions and help them achieve solutions for their own healthcare needs. Yeah,
0: right. So you've got a a focus on, on prevention
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, So when we look at what we can do to help the health of the population and what can make the biggest difference, um, it's not just making sure there's access to general practitioners, and that's clearly very important and certainly our primary business. But when we can make the big difference to society is by working in the space to help prevent disease, to stop people getting sick. Certainly if people have a disease, we help them manage it so it doesn't get any worse. That means they don't have to visit the doctor as much. That means they can you know, be in employment or spend more time with their family. They get a much better situation for that individual. It's much better economically for the society. There's just a lot of wins there, and that's what we're really focused on and what we'll continue to focus more and more on because we can have a much, much larger impact. Yeah, nice. Well,
0: we'll probably unpack that a little bit later. And the other one that's really specific in your goals is... um lessening the the impact of chronic conditions
1: yeah um yeah. so so that really goes into you know people with things like diabetes where they require the proper management to ensure that people don't get worse and they don't escalate where people require things like amputation which is just sort of a horrible outcome so if we can help people with those chronic conditions manage their diseases really well we can prevent a lot of those outcomes as well which obviously is a good thing for the individual good thing for society and you know where's where's the downside of that yeah, I mean, chronic conditions, I can imagine that would be pretty expensive in the normal system. Uh, well, it, it really depends. So if uh, an individual... Um, we'll use diabetes because it's a, a pretty common one, but if an individual... Um, works with you know the a system and um, prevents the you know a, an amputation for instance from occurring. Well, obviously that's a good outcome for them. But if they were to not manage their condition properly, they, they don't work with the system. They don't work with um, you know general practitioners and all the other allied health services. And they actually need to go through and get an amputation. The cost to the system is hundreds of thousands of dollars, long waits. That's just not fun for them. It's not fun for, you know, all of us as taxpayers having to to fund the system. I'm sure the government would agree with us. Um, (laughs) But more importantly, I think people like to keep their limbs. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess it comes back to that prevention thing again then. It really does, yes.
0: So I guess, yeah, it began in Charmwood in 2010, and, you know, I said that was my neck of the woods, and when I grew up there, it was a bit of a rough neighbourhood. Um, are you intentionally sort of um, opening up in, in the in the less advantaged sort of areas? Is A lot of co-ops throughout the world have a focus on helping those who actually need the help, you know, sort of addressing a need that's actually there.
1: Is that one of your focuses? Yes. Yeah, so, so the the whole goal is to provide services where they're needed, and that so happens, especially you know in Canberra, it's it's where there's a you know a, a lack of uh, a capacity for people to either access existing services or um, there's not a lot of profitability for a, a large established player to come in and provide those services to individuals that maybe don't have the same economic capacity to pay as others would in say Red Hill or Yarralumla. So it's our goal to provide services where they're needed, and that so happens. In, in obviously in Charnwood's case. Charnwood is a prime example of where those have been needed but we've also expanded to you know eight other sites around Canberra. We're building our ninth in Yass at the moment um, so we, we will go wherever there is need um, and our goal once again is just to prevent um, diseases and provide access to affordable health care for everyone who needs it. Yeah so Charnwood in 2010 what happened then? How did uh, it all Explode like it has been. Well, so so uh, it, it took a number of years. Uh, so the first kind of agitations that actually ended up starting the co-op started back way in in two thousand and four. So it took about six years for you know people to get together, decide that okay, we need to we need to fix a problem, um, explore a bunch of different solutions. They conducted a bit of a survey. You know what do we want to do? How do we want to fix this? And, uh, and all that work and, you know, all, all the people providing um, their expert advice and their help and opinions and eventually fundraising all accumulated in 2010 to the opening and establishment of that first clinic. Now, that was so successful at that time, it was um, very well subscribed within sort of nine or 10 months. We had opened our second clinic. Um, And it's just kind of grown from there. It's just the community support is what, um, as a cooperative, uh, and as you know, it's what we live on. You know, we we exist because the community wants what we're providing because we are the community. And the very fact that we're getting the support means we continue to grow. And because we don't um, provide, you know, a return to shareholders, we're community-owned, we don't distribute any uh, revenue we reinvested back into providing services and expanding our more sort of model and sort of our locations. So at present, we, we operate eight sites in Canberra. We're now the largest provider of primary healthcare in Canberra. Um, last year, we did, oh, it would have been well over 120,000 GP consults fully booked. build. That, that's a massive number we've been able to achieve. Um, and the growth rate is, is crazy. It's excellent.
0: Yeah, so you've spread to sort of eight locations. Where are they?
1: Yeah, okay, so uh, we've well, we already talked about Charmwood uh, yep. as being the first one. And then we moved into Bellconnen, so, you know, once again over in the north side. Um, we, we have uh, six sites in, in the north side, two sites in the south. So we've got uh, Macquarie, like I've said, Belconnen, Kipax, um, Charmwood. We've got one at Higgins, which has just opened in the side of the old supermarket there, um, and Everett. And then down south, we've got uh, Waniasa and Chisholm. Chisholm's another reasonably big site. Um, And uh, our goal is to build more down south so we get a a really good coverage of both north and south Canberra. Um, Obviously, we've got uh, some new suburbs that are developing sort of in the Western Creek area, which uh, clearly are under service at this point and would be a natural place we would start to look. Um, And then, you know, the rest of the country is is the next step.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll be a big step and we'll we'll have a look at that later. So what what sort of services do you provide uh, throughout all this... Of network that you have now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a huge number of services really um, and, and I won't list all of them because, you know, we don't want to put, a, put the audience to sleep but, um, <laughs> you know, our primary services we provide uh, general practitioners, GPs, you know, your local doctor um, but what we also provide is we provide a fully bulk-built psychologists um, and I, we've got eight psychologists at the moment. We've just put on a mental health social worker which is the first um, in Australia in any general practice um, which is, you know, it's really great to be able to push those boundaries. Um, we have a a full-time nurse at every single site. Um, we also employ nurse practitioners. Once again, there's not many in the country that uh, that do that, and, and we've got two of them. Um, and, and a huge number of allied services. We've got an exercise physiologist on board. Um, I could go on, but uh, in the interest of expediency, yeah, there's a huge amount of services. And if people are really interested, um, the best way to do it is, is go at our website. We're, we're literally adding new staff and services, you know, sort of every week, every other week. Um, so nhc.coop.com. Because, um, you know, it's owned by the community. And uh, and the idea is that, yeah, people can uh, sort of have a look who's there, look at the profiles of each of our clinicians, um, see what they specialise in, and if you want, have a chat to them. That's, that's why it's there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess one of the, one of the keystones of, of effective healthcare is communication. Um, and you know, you've got... Uh You've got people with a few different languages on
1: board. Yeah, we, we certainly do. There's there's quite a lot of languages now.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of managed to managed to find fifteen different languages <laughs> spoken by your your staff.
1: So, so well, the, the good thing of being uh, from the community, for the community, is Canberra is very multicultural. Um, and, you know, we've uh, either acquired um, practitioners who come from Canberra or have been brought to the Canberra region for family reasons. So they are part of the community and therefore they integrate into the community. So, you know, if there's a language that's spoken in Canberra, we're likely to probably have it on staff. <laughs> yeah. um, and if not, we, we've obviously, we use interpretation services to make sure our services are fully accessible.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a probably a fairly unique thing for a GP. Um, so if you, you've got say one mental health social worker and one exercise physiologist
1: do they travel between your different clinics yeah absolutely so the way it works um all of our larger sites we have uh, special rooms set aside for um those individuals to work from and we make sure that's a really good uh, cross-section of Canberra so we have so sites down in Tuggerong we have sites up in um, in Belconnen to make sure people don't have to travel too far from their home Um, Now, when it comes to exercise physiology, we have special spaces set up in two clinics, one in North, one in South, um, with our mental health social worker. They're, They're operating from a number of clinics across Canberra. Our psychologists do the same. Um, various skilled practitioners will, will vary their their mix around Canberra to ensure that their services are accessible wherever an individual happens to live. So we're being as convenient as possible. Now all that's available on our website, so people can sort of make a booking with the individual, and it will tell them where they are, what days, and you know people just choose whatever's most convenient for them.
0: Yeah, it's a, quite a quite a different um, quite a different model of operating from your conventional practice, it seems on on the surface of it.
1: Um, well, it, it really stems from the fact that we're not trying to make money out of doing this. The whole reason the co-op exists, the reason we're member-owned, the reason that we were started is to solve a problem. And, you know, the, the Canberra still has a shortage of doctors. You know, it's still hard to find a bulk-billing doctor in Canberra. I believe it's the worst place in the country to find a bulk-billing doctor. The rates are the lowest. So we've still got a lot of work to do. Um, But what it does mean is that everything we do is about fixing that goal. It's about addressing that problem. So it means that when we're acting or making a decision, it's about growing the capability of the organisation to achieve that outcome for our, our members, for our users, for society generally. So it means that instead of paying a shareholder a return, we put on another dietitian, or we put on another exercise physiologist or we build another site. And we work with partners in our community. We've, we've recently entered into a partnership with Service Wine Alliance Bank, um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. I've read a little bit up on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're, they're another like organisation that exists for the benefit of their members. Once again, they don't exist to make money. And we figured, well, we should partner with organisations that think in the same way, that are there for the same reasons to help people. And they're working with us and they're helping us establish sites and we're working together to solve people's, well, we're working for, for health needs, they're working for people's financial needs. And it's a really quite nice symbiotic relationship where you know, instead of one of the big four, we're there to make a big difference, they're there to make a difference. Well, we can all make a difference together.
0: Yeah, right. So I guess if, if it goes as, as you're hoping it will, I mean, there's there's national ambitions for the uh, for the co-op, of course, being national health co-op, <laughs> um, you, you're now quite successfully up and running. and in that stage of taking a successful model and expanding it, you're really in a, in a fundamental sort of design stage of a, a healthcare system in Australia that hasn't really been seen before. So I guess that's a massive opportunity, but it's mi- mixed up with a, a massive responsibility. So,
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very big challenge what we're um, beginning to embark on. So what we're focusing now is really developing our backend systems and operations to ensure we can sustain what we're doing so we can make sure that we're delivering the efficiencies required from a you know what is getting to be a medium-sized large business, where we can ensure that what we do is we do you know deliver healthcare exceptionally efficiently, provide it where it's needed for the individuals, and make sure that we can um, provide those services in an economically efficient manner. So we can provide as many services as possible. And that means we have to get into standardised design, we have to make sure that all our sites effectively operate the same so we get efficiencies across managing those. Um, You know, running eight current sites plus, you know, an office and building our ninth, this (laughs) logistically starts to get quite complicated. Yeah, and I guess if you are expanding and expanding, that's going to be a continuing
0: situation too it's not a one-off
1: no so so we end up um just by nature being you know quite a large i guess property management organization where we're Mm. managing different sites and we have to make sure that you know how do we paint these sites you know how do we make sure that the toys are clean in there for the kids it's simple stuff but if we don't get it right it makes a big difference no one wants to walk into a site with grubby walls and broken toys no no do you um do you
0: own the the properties the clinics are housed in?
1: Uh, so we we own one of the buildings through a, um, through an opportunity that we had. But in in general, no, we're actually not seeking to own the property. Our, our goal is to provide healthcare, not to, not be a property mogul. Yep. Um, and we figured it's better to use our resources into providing healthcare and providing more sites than it is to. acquire property and seek to gain on that. Our goal is to once again provide that healthcare and everything that um, I guess doesn't achieve that outcome is something we're looking to outsource or push to the side because our focus is on that core business and anything that kind of interacts with that or or would uh, distract us from it, it's really something we want to try and avoid. Fundamental
0: needs, again, you keep coming back to the fundamental needs which is really the big point of difference I guess between the conventional design of most business and a co-op. Are there any others? I mean, you've you've covered things like preventable diseases and and chronic conditions and stuff like that. Are there any other sort of real fundamentals that you keep coming back to?
1: Yeah, well, it, it really comes down to making sure our community has access to healthcare services. Now, at the moment, we're providing general practitioners a bunch of allied healthcare services, but it's really anything that the community needs that's going to contribute to a healthy lifestyle, is something that we either we are looking at or will look at doing over time and and it's making sure that we remove economic barriers for people accessing stuff they need in order to live a productive and healthy life.
0: You would have done a, a fairly honest assessment of, of what the um, what the current organisations are uh, are up to. Um, how do you how do you sort of how do you not sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater but as well overlook sort of problems which might be sort of taboo and, and hard to talk about publicly? How, well, do, you, how do you do that balance?
1: Um, I, I guess as an organisation and one that's growing pretty quickly, it's always difficult to make sure that we can grow and meet the demand that is there. And, and obviously, you know, our goal is to, to provide that service to as many people as we can and, and make them, you know, the largest impact to society. Um, But we have to do that in a way that obviously stays true to the vision of what we are. Now, being a cooperative, that's a great way to keep us grounded because uh, we will hold an AGM. Members of the the public, you know, our members can turn up and ask great, hard questions, and and we actually really like that. We have really good feedback mechanisms. So, you know, we we encourage our members to contribute back and say, hey, we don't like this or we love this. Give us feedback. Good, bad, indifferent, doesn't really matter. The fact that we understand that and we get that connection is is really important. And as we continue to grow, we'll have you know, we will establish local groups to make sure that you know the community itself can tell us what they need and we can be responsive to that demand. We never want to get into a situation where there's you know sort of some big ivory tower and you know you know we're not connected with the community. We are the community, we have to be that, otherwise this just doesn't work. Um, so... A cooperative, for
0: those who, who aren't familiar with
1: the cooperative, well,
0: what is a co op?
1: Yeah, um, well, co ops can be so many different things. And uh, the, the amazing thing is that they are, have been very prevalent in um, particularly Australian society, but all over the world, but less so in recent years. But in saying that, most of the audience out there, or, or most people in general, would be a member of a cooperative, whether they realize it or not. Um, large organizations like uh, HCF or NRMA. cooperatives Um, Some of the largest companies in Australia, like CBH Group, they're a big grain um, exporter. They're a cooperative. They're owned by the farmers. Or, you know, like there's dairy farmer cooperatives that, you know, um, buy milk from farmers and sell it on their behalf. So these things exist. Um, We're a little bit different because instead of being owned by, you know, sort of like the doctors or or the providers of the service, we're actually owned by the consumers of the service. So whereas some of those other cooperatives would have maybe tens or hundreds of, of members... At the moment, we've got over 33,000 in Canberra. Now, that, that's a, that's a great, great responsibility and challenge. Um, but as we keep growing, we've got to make sure that those members stay engaged, they understand that uh, they're actually an owner of this business. Now, they won't get a financial return because we're a non-distributing cooperative, which means we take all the revenue that, that we get from providing services and we reinvest it into providing more services and growing the business. Um, but fundamentally, it's all about you know, ensuring that the member or the, you know, like the actual end user is the beneficiary of everything we do, always. And that, that's a really big difference with a, sort of a commercial model, which is established to provide a return to a shareholder. We don't have um, that uh, that challenge, which is a wonderful thing. It means we can focus on providing healthcare for the pure benefit of providing healthcare. Um, where these are required in society, it's a really nice alignment of incentives.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I guess you, your focus is still providing providing for your members if you look at a shareholder as a member but the, uh, the return that they're getting is a service rather than a financial profit
1: yeah yeah precisely mm. so the, the reason people join up to become part of the cooperative is to access our services mm-hmm. and it's like a club you pay you know you pay your membership fee and then you get access to everything and you get all the benefits, benefits associated with that whereas if you go and buy shares in you know Woolies or Coles or someone like that well, you want a return. Like the, the quid pro quo for that investment is you want a, a dividend. Well, well you know our dividends, you know, better life and better healthcare and a better society. Yeah. So who can join? Everybody. 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 Yep. There's, there's no limit. Everybody can join. Um, and the way the membership works is uh, depending on if you've got a um, you know a discount associated with you know like an, an aged care card or a, you know one of those sort of things um, it's either a, a set amount annually or you can uh, d- deal with it on a, a monthly basis just an ongoing direct debit um, and for that an individual gets all of this uh, you know their kids covered for free which is kind of nice everyone under 18 is attached to their parents um, their membership um, and it's just a completely equitable model yeah yeah beautiful
0: um, and, and cooperatives, sort of, there's a well. I guess I should explain. There's a, there's a the cooperatives they started Yonks ago in 1844. I think the the yeah. current international model started. And there's a bunch of uh, a bunch of principles that the International Co-op Alliance is um, has got out. Are, are you aligned with the International Co-op Alliance principles?
1: We we certainly are, a- yeah. and also the United Nations Development Goals.
0: Yeah, so right. particularly yeah.
1: number, number three on that one is, is you know, access to healthcare, yes. and, which is pretty much the reason we exist. Yep. So, yeah, we, we play very much in that international space. We, we very much care about um, ensuring society is better as a whole. And you know, as a health cooperative, we play one key part of that. But we work with other organisations to you know achieve that overarching goal of the health, of the Cooperatives Alliance and the United Nations.
0: Yeah, right. So are there other uh, health co in that in this sort of vein around the world that you, you might yeah. have got your inspiration from? Or?
1: Well, so a, a big source of inspiration when we we're first starting was a healthcare cooperative in Australia, uh, based down in uh, in Melbourne. Okay. So Westgate Health Cooperative were um, was. Well, I would argue the first in the country to sort of build a model, and they operate, um, and you know, a few sites. And the idea is that uh, they're they're doing a similar thing to what we're doing. Um, they've been very successful. They've, they've sort of existed for over thirty years. Um, now we, we learnt a lot from them. We adapted their model. We um, you know have built a slightly different model on what they have done. So you know it's great to always be able to you know uh, take inspiration from the, the amazing work of others, and we've adapted that to our needs, to the you know the Canberra community's needs. And ideally, we're building a model that um, can grow across the entire country to you know, solve the problem everywhere.
0: Another one of the uh, the principles is democratic member control. So how how is Democracy
1: built into the, the oh, co-op structure. The democracy is just baked in at the ground level. It's it's wonderful. So, um, like like many kind of uh, businesses, if you will, the cooperative has a board of directors that uh, set the strategic direction and uh, you know oversee the governance of the organisation. Now, any member has the ability to uh, nominate to be on that board of directors. Obviously, you know we'd encourage them to be suitably qualified to, to <laughs> contribute to what is a, a very uh, rapidly growing and large business. Um, but everyone has the opportunity to certainly um, put their hand up and and uh, try and uh, become a director of the organisation. They certainly have the ability to turn up to an AGM and ask questions um, and they can also just make an appointment and talk to the management of the organisation at any time they like. They can submit feedback anonymously or otherwise. They get the ability to really have those interactions. And, and that's where we've uh, certainly got the majority of our existing board from, uh, is our members. Um, it's where a lot of uh, the new service ideas come from, where people just say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could? And we work it out. That's, that's what it is. Provided we can make it economically... Um, you know put something in place that's a sustainable service delivery there's nothing we in theory can't do
0: some of the larger co-ops that you've mentioned the NRMA and stuff tend to the management sort of can get a little bit remote from the shareholders and your co-op is planning on getting to be quite a big scale like that how are you going to manage the communications between and maintain that sort of I mean at the moment you've got quite a local sort of yes relationship with all of your customers and everybody's here in the same city how's that likely to uh, develop as as you expand
1: sure Um, well our challenge is obviously always being responsive to local needs and uh, even in Canberra we have very diverse needs what you know what someone in Charmwood needs versus what someone in Yarralumla would need are very different different services, different requirements. So what we have to do as an organisation is continue to make sure we're responsive to those local community needs. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to set up local community committees that allow individuals that choose to be on that committee to meet and guide what that you know the local practices deliver. So they get to say in how it works. They get to provide direct feedback from the ground. And that ensures that as the organisation continues to expand and, you know, we're focusing on, you know, moving into South Australia and Queensland and Victoria and Tasmania, well, we need to be able to still be connected with the local community to make sure we're delivering what they want. Because at the end of the day, it's their business. It's not our business as, as people running it. it is, it's the business of the members. And so our goal is to ensure that we provide mechanisms and feedback opportunities so they can actually contribute to the direction and development of the organisation. Now, on a generic front, we also use things like social media. So we're on Twitter and Facebook. We've got a, a, new, a new website we've launched to make sure we're, we're putting out as much information as possible and we're as transparent as possible to ensure people can stay up to date with us and, and have those ways of communicate with us as well
0: are the are the local clinics what what sort of autonomy do they have within the the the, the structure i mean you've got obviously going to have an, an overarching structure to try and streamline the various clinics throughout the country yeah. in some fashion but you also want to maintain the localness and like you say the individual at, characters of each each clinic
1: yeah so so the way uh, probably best way to think about it is think about um, IKEA they've recently come to Canberra so our goal is to have every clinic effectively looking the same so you know what you're going to expect you get a certain quality of experience which is really important um But the clinicians in there, in each clinic, so, you know, the the service mix of the doctors and the nurses and whomever else we have there, they're autonomous. They respond to the individual patient. So we make sure that the services that are being provided by the clinician are directly tailored to the individual because we're not going to provide, you know, something that's good for Mary but not good for Frank. That's, That's just not going to work. So we've got to make sure that our clinicians are empowered to be autonomous with their delivery. Now, when it comes down to the service mix, so what individuals are, you know, are needed, what, you know, how many doctors versus how many nurses versus do we need a physiotherapist or, or, or whatever, um, you know, we work with the community to find out what, what the demand is. We also look at what's also on offer. So you know, if we can go into a, a community, and we do this when we establish new practices, we go, okay, how many doctors are around? Are they bulk billing? Uh, you know, is there nursing available? What, what services are missing? Well, that's a pretty great way to work out what people need. So when we do that analysis, we go, OK, well, this is what we need to build. And this means we might need to build a practice that holds five clinicians or 10 or 15 or three or, or whatever it might be to make sure it's fit, custom designed to that local community. And then you work with the local community on an ongoing basis to constantly adjust that mix to ensure it stays relevant.
0: On the, the democracy side of things, is going to have to be sort of semi-autonomous in a parallel sort of fashion. There's a good op- a good option that's been tried in the past in the, in the Mondragon uh, complex of, of co-ops in Spain, they wound up having problems with the, the democracy and the chain leading up, and they, they formed a thing called the Social Council, which is mm-hmm. like a parallel board on a local level. Have, have you got any sort of structures like that well, to provide feedback so up, up, the, up the chain?
1: Yeah, so that's very similar to those local community committees that uh, mm. we're, we're going to establish, yep. where it provides, the you know, empowers that local community... And, you know, in Canberra, it might be one north side, one south side, or it might be all those in the West Belconan region. And, you know, we can work out the logical lines of where to, to, you know, draw those and, and establish realistically as many as is needed to provide a voice for the community. And that allows that process of the community to get around and say, hey, here's what we need to do. Now, we could empower those organisations with the ability to commit some funds. We could give them the ability to um, directly influence the services, or we could just use them as a, tra- a channel to provide advice. Now, that's going to depend on different locations, um, and certainly as the organisation develops, the power of those committees is going to have to increase to ensure that we get that democratisation of individuals, and so they can really contribute to the uh, the ongoing growth of the organisation.
0: How well do you reckon all this is going to work once the organisation just becomes wildly successful on a national scale and the vast majority of Australians are your members? Well,
1: wouldn't what if wouldn't if that you,
0: be a wonderful problem? 23 million customers.
1: Oh, jeez oh, we, we can dream. <laughs> um, the, the model itself is being built and it's, it started from the grassroots, which is, is a, it's a really hard way to start an organisation, but it's also a really great way to start it because it means it stays true to those original principles. It means that the people that we employ are committed to delivering on that outcome. And given it's a cooperative and it's member owned and it doesn't distribute, it can never get corrupted. You can't have an individual go into it with this, you know, the, the goal of uh, self-profit because they can't get it. No one can extract money out of the organisation, which is a brilliant way to protect it from you know, those, those perils of, um, of you know, some larger organisations. So we, we find that um, as we've been growing, it actually gets stronger. And as the economic power of the organisation increases because we're getting bigger, it actually makes it more robust and we can deliver more services because we cross-subsidise. So nurses don't make any money. They actually cost us money. But we provide them because they're what the community needs. Now, as we get bigger and as we can you know, generate more revenue off lots of other services, we can provide more things cross-subsidised, which actually increases the power, increases the democracy um, and, and ultimately improves the organisation further. In that sort of funding side of things, are you,
0: are you considering setting up sort of health-related side businesses to, to provide more of that extra revenue to, to build your services like health impact assessments or something on policy and developments?
1: Well, a lot of stuff when you get scaled doesn't actually cost a lot of money, which is a really great thing. And if we get to keep expanding, because you know hopefully we're still successful, it allows us to utilise the small amount of, uh, of extra resources we can make um, out of just efficiencies and provide those into those other things. So it doesn't actually require a huge amount of money to achieve that outcome. And the way we obviously operate is the same as you know, sort of every doctor in the country is making sure that um, we uh, get the, the Medicare rebate for a service that is delivered to a patient. Now, we choose to bolt bills, so there's no gap expenditure for for an individual. And we, we use that that small amount of money to provide access to, obviously, the doctor, pay their wage, you know, the receptionist that greets you, paint the walls in the clinic, replace the carpets, all that stuff, but also to do all that other stuff as well, pay the nurse, do the health analytics, provide additional services. The larger we get, still a small amount of money, but the, the total amount of money gets a bit bigger, which means we can do more things. So that's kind of how the economics work.
0: The, the margin that you're getting just on operating, that's enough to provide all the services
1: and to expand. It, it's, it's enough to do that in partnership with other organisations to expand um, if we don't need to make a profit that returns to shareholders. And because we don't have to do that, it works. Mm -hmm. whereas you'll probably see in the media a lot of um, doctors talking about where they need to increase the cost of a consultation because the Medicare rates have been freezed. Well, the Medicare rates being freezed are always difficult because inflation goes up and the amount you're you're being paid to provide the service doesn't, so naturally that makes it harder. But because we don't need to provide a return to a shareholder, we've got far more uh, scope to play and reinvest that money instead. So it, it changes the economics of it.
0: So where does that extra, I guess, the gap money? Could, so, explain how it works. How does just just in, in briefly how how does the Medicare and this gap payment and stuff? What, what's going yeah, on with that? Sure.
1: So, so if if you go to a doctor, how much did you pay for your last doctor's visit? Oh, sixty dollars or something. I there think. you go. And, yeah. and you get a certain amount back from Medicare, thirty-seven dollars. Yeah, I believe about, so. About yeah. that? If you do the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you do the paperwork, of course. Um, so the difference is if we choose to bulk bill, you know, yourself as an individual, instead of you getting the rebate from Medicare. They just give it to us instead, but we don't charge you the difference. We don't charge you 70 bucks. We charge you zero out of pocket, and we just get Medicare pay us the $37 instead. So, in effect, we get paid $37 for you to visit the doctor. Now, out of that $37, we pay for all those things I listed before. That, that's essentially how it works in bulk billing. Does... Uh do all services that you provide get that $37 per consultation? It, it's, uh, the, the amount varies depending on the service. So there's something called the Med- Medicare Benefit Scheme, and that dictates how much a service is worth and how much Medicare will pay for that service. The ethos, The ethos of our organisation is everything that can be bulk billed, we do not charge any gap fee at all. If an individual comes in and they want to access a service and they can't be bulk billed, whether maybe they're not an Australian citizen or they're not entitled to Medicare or you might need a referral to get it and they don't want to get a referral, then we'll typically just charge the amount that we would have otherwise got. So we're not there to make a profit off the services, we're there just to effectively cover the cost to make sure it's sustainable because we need to make sure that it's there ongoingly into the future so people can access the services.
0: Yeah, and like you say, that's all cross subsidised. Nice, nice. Do you know how it's decided which, which sort of remedies and which sort of practitioners are going to be subsidised by the Medicare system?
1: Oh, well, that's a question for the government of the day. Yeah, and obviously, well, obviously, you know, they're taking a lot of advice from a lot of different people. This is what the health department specialises yeah, in. Yeah. And, and they're working out, you know, sort of what rates and what things um, are due to be put into that, that system and, and uh, you know, how it's managed.
0: So I guess the, the people in, in the private sort of system, the, the normal medical system, obviously work an awful lot harder than everybody in there because they don't to charge that extra gap amount that they've got they're making a lot more money. So,
1: how much harder do you reckon they work? Than well, you? It's, uh, it's 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 an interesting situation. So, a, a small business—I'm not going to comment on how hard they work. But it, it's a, they don't work as well. No, we, we—I we, wouldn't possibly comment. Um, the The situation you get is that a smaller, <laughs> smaller, you know, one or two doctor practice—they're um, not able to operate as efficiently as we can, being a larger organisation now. Mm-hmm. Um, But also, they're investing their personal money and they're wanting and expecting a return out of that business. And I guess any business owner is entitled to that. The problem with that, from our perspective, is that it locks some people out of the system where they can't afford to pay $70 to go visit a doctor. And that's not fair. If people need to access healthcare, they should access healthcare. So there's a, they play an important uh, role in society, and it's part of the economic system, and that that is great. We play a different one, and I think together we're actually quite complementary. So you know, mm. they provide a service that some people want and need, and we provide a service that other people want to need, and together that functions really nicely. Yeah. So
0: I guess with that, that slightly cheeky question there, what I was leading into is um, a, a lot of the medical system, particularly in the training makes doctors in particular do really ridiculous hours in their internships and stuff and sometimes in the hospitals they continue doing just insane hours and how does that affect the quality of service does tiredness affect people's decision making
1: well, in the hospitals, it's not something that we're directly involved in, but you, you could imagine people being tired um, could have a, a correlation with their ability to operate efficiently. Um, so, and, and I'm aware that you know hospitals have practices in place to try and mitigate, um, you know, how tired their staff are, and ensuring there's minimum breaks between shifts. And, and there's there's a lot of uh, work being done to try and prevent those issues. Um, in our space, with you know general practitioners. Um, we actually have a system where they choose to work what hours they, they want, so um, they can choose to work full time sort of nine to five Monday to Friday. They can choose to to you know make four days during the week and a day on the weekends because we provide services on Saturdays across the whole day. We provide services uh, till nine p m at night at uh, at some of our clinics. So we're really working with our practitioners to find something that works for them, works for their family, to ensure that you know they're not overtired. We're not asking people to do double shifts or any of that kind of crazy stuff. In fact, that's not something we we support at all. So it is all about the quality of care and ensuring that um, you know safe care is being provided.
0: But obviously, it's quite a different sort of feeling from conventional operations, where it would be a lot more top down than there. Yeah. So there's that autonomy sticking out again. Are there any any? Limitations, which are sort of unique to being
1: a co-op. Uh, well, I wouldn't say there's limitations. I'd say there's there's a number of advantages out of being a cooperative, and and that really comes back to that member ownership and the, the singular focus on providing services opposed to merely watching the bottom line and trying to generate revenue. Now, clearly, as any business, we you know we have to generate revenue in order to survive. But it's what we do with that revenue, and it's how we reinvest it back into providing services, what makes the really big difference.
0: So I guess with the access and, um, and what the co-op can do, um, can it help with, with medical costs that are sort of outside the scope of, of the co-op system?
1: Yeah, so, so what, uh, what the cooperative can do in society is obviously it provides a direct benefit to those individuals that access services. Um, and last year we, you know, we sort of, uh, in Canberra anyway, we delivered sort of 120,000 GP consults, all bulk, bulk bills. Now that's a, that's a big direct impact to those individuals that receive those services. But what we can do as we're trying to get into more of the preventative medicine or managing chronic, condi- chronic conditions is we can actually prevent people's need to access medical services. Now, that frees up capacity for other people to access services, which is a good outcome. But it also means that individuals potentially use less medical services over the longer term, You know, stops them going to hospital, stops them going to the doctor more frequently, just better manages their health, which actually means we spend or the government spends less money delivering services. So, yeah, it can have a really big economic impact, not just for the individual patients, but society as a whole.
0: Let's say there's an emergency or or somebody's got a chronic condition and they need to buy a new wheelchair every now and then. Is that sort of ongoing costs included in your $100 or or would you just have to pay for that out-of-pocket well, like, if, like if, you would in any case.
1: Well, if if someone needs equipment, then clearly there's mechanism for you know those individuals. Maybe it's through you know their personal insurance. Um, maybe it's covered under Medicare through various. You know arrangements. Um, we're really in that primary healthcare delivery. So if you know you need a doctor, or you want to speak to a you know a psychologist, or a social worker, or a dietitian, that's where we play that that big role. It's really that triaging thing. And then, as you know, any GP would, we're referring out to specialists if that's what's needed. We're we're putting people into the system and connecting them with the right people to ensure they get the best possible care.
0: So a lot of say insurance companies might exclude people who've got a pre-existing sort of chronic condition yeah. from. <laughs> becoming a member of their their club um people with pre-existing conditions and stuff are you're well, available for them to join i
1: guess yeah of course so uh, naturally everybody can can join um the the national health cooperative there's no restrictions on anybody um joining it how they can access our service will depend on what they're eligible to receive under medicare but in saying that majority of people in society are eligible to access medicare so it, it's it's very little variance in how people would access the services. Mm. And
0: how does it dovetail with, with the private health insurance system? If people have got private health insurance already,
1: what happens? Well, private health care insurance doesn't actually, at the moment, cover um, general practitioner services. So they're really quite separate. If people end up going to a hospital, that's where the private health insurance argument really kicks in and people would uh, choose to access private health care services uh, or, or not, they might choose the public system, but when it comes to primary healthcare delivery, it's not not something at present that the uh, prim- that the uh, health insurers get into.
0: Now that dovetails quite nicely, really, doesn't it? Sure, yeah, it's oh, good. <laughs> we are going to hear a song. It's going to be another one from the uh, formidable Vegetable Sound System, and uh, yeah, we'll chat more in a couple of minutes.
1: It's a beautiful day out in the yard We're gonna get out of play in the
0: garden There's plenty to do,
1: but we're not gonna work too hard And we're gonna have some fun with all our friends Come on, let's grow, grow, do it Everybody get
0: up, get going, get outside, get into. We've got so much food to grow, so we can share it round with all our friends. So we can share it round
1: with all our
0: share it round, with all our share it round, with all our friends. Well, we're back on Community Radio, X 983 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines, uh, and we're joined in the studio by Blake Wilson from the National Health Co-op. The, the National Health Co-op, it's, it's obviously planning to go national. Um, how How is it going to expand? Because uh, I'm not sure, I haven't actually checked up lately, but last time I did look, a couple of years ago, the, the law's governing cooperatives in, in all the different states were wildly variable. Uh, how's the co-op going to deal with, with that can of worms? I mean, sure. it's like the different railway gauges, really, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's an, an interesting situation that um, uh, poses some difficulty as we, we need to expand, but there's nothing that fundamentally stands in our way. It means we might just have to register in different states with different bodies, but it's just more paperwork, if you will so there's nothing that prohibits us from going anywhere which is which is kind of nice now uh, each state and territory is, is currently considering sort of a national co-op law to try and standardize that and then remove the different uh, gauge railways uh, railways as you will um now, some states have done that, which makes it much easier. Um, some states haven't. Some states have done a little bit of it. And we'll just work with that on a case-by-case. Case. We'll talk to the various governments. They might choose that, um, you know, uh, helping us to, to go in there by aligning their laws would be a good thing for their state. Um, you know, realistically, it would uh, would certainly help their their citizens access healthcare, which is kind of a good thing as well. Um, so there's ways we can deal with that. There's certainly nothing that's going to stop us.
0: Would you consider, say, if, if other cooperatives were trying to do the same thing, trying to go national, would you sort of consider giving them a hand as well if you've already sort of pioneered the...
1: Oh, the of course. So part of the cooperative... Compliance. Yeah, part of the cooperative environment is we, we help each other. Um, you know, we're organisations that are trying to achieve similar outcomes or certainly have similar philosophies. Um, you know, our goal is to, yeah, provide information and advice and support um, where appropriate. Now, some organisations have helped us with that and, uh, you know, we, we will and we do pay that forward.
0: As part of the expansion sort of plans, are you likely to get more specialists on board? You've got sort of one specialist at the moment.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, as we um, identify specialities that are required... Um, So, you know, be that uh, they're not accessible or they're too expensive or or whatever have you. And we identify suitable individuals. Now, um, there's not a lot of specialists, you know, it's kind of inherent in their name. Um, But we will work with those individuals and and work at how to provide services, you know, either at a discounted rate or, or, you know, whatever the arrangement is to make sure that we're maximising the uh, access to those services for people and lessening the, um, you know, the financial barrier that people might have. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to be provided for free, but it does mean that we will increase access, and, and that's always the goal. How about
0: dentistry? That's been a, a problem issue in Australia for the last while.
1: Yeah, it, that, that's a really hard one. Um, dentistry is very expensive. Uh, we don't have a public system that supports dentistry You know, for, for most people, as you were aware. Um, it's something we're actively working on how we we fix that. Um, But like I said, it's very expensive and very complicated. So watch this space.
0: Is dentistry currently covered by the bulk billing sort of scheme? No, not at all. Are you looking to operate your own hospitals or anything way down the track
1: is that an ambition in in the fullness of time who knows where we could be but yeah it's certainly within the realms of possibility that you know that is something in theory we could expand into um it really comes down to what is the need you know if there is an identified need and we can make the economics of the situation work there's no reason we wouldn't pursue options like that or at least maybe work with others to achieve that outcome so it's about delivering outcomes and that may mean we do things but it also mean we might just work with partners to to achieve the same outcome it's
0: it's quite wound up with the with the state already and one of the experiences they had in Mondragon uh, when they started up in the 50s and 60s they I think cooperatives by law, were excluded from their national health system entirely, so they couldn't do the sort of dovetailing that you've done with their Mm. Medicare system. So they did actually start up their own parallel health system, which subsequently the laws changed and they merged with the government. Mm. Um, So the two systems were working together. And then they had another government change and they got thrown out. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's really... (laughs) really uh, played a lot of havoc with, with the health side of their conglomerate of cooperatives, which are all supporting each other.
1: Um, how stable is, is the Medicare system here? I mean, no, well, well, since its introduction into Australia in the, sort of the, the, you know, like the, the 70s and 80s, it's, it's been remarkably stable. It's, uh, you know, sort of a bipartisan policy um, which is always nice. Now you'll you you'll see the the arguments in any election with you know we support <laughs> Medicare we don't all this sort of stuff. But but fundamentally both parties support the the core um, you know, areas of Medicare, um, which means as far as you know Australia is concerned it's a reasonably stable policy platform. Um, now there's a lot of discussion around you know um, freezing the Medicare rebate uh, and those things and and you know they're real discussions they have real impact. Um, but even in that, it's, it's not threatening the entire system. It's, it's really, you know, sort of on the periphery, some of the, those arguments around, you know, what's the future going to look like. But it's certainly not uh, throwing anyone out of the bath. I think you're right, it is pretty good here.
0: And it can have nasty consequences, like we heard, if, 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 <laughs> if it gets all unstable. Uh, um, are you looking to, to train people?
1: Oh, well, you already do. So um, we, we train uh, a, a large number of, of GPs already. So we take GP registrars you know, out of university, um, work with them to give them practical experiences as, as part of their, you know, their coursework and, and their qualification. Um, all our GPs go through additional um, of learnings, essentially. So um, when they, they join us from... Uh, they start, if they're an overseas trained doctor, there's, there's a huge amount of, um, uh, of continuous learning that they get. If they're a locally trained doctor... Um, very much the same. So um, we have a big focus on making sure that we're constantly upskilling all of our clinicians, um, making sure they're always developing their skills and kind of reaching for the peak of their profession. So we actively support that.
0: Um, I guess one thing that's that's been lacking in Australia is, is right. education on the actual structure and operations of a cooperative form of business. Uh, are you considering putting a little bit of that into the syllabus or opening it up for the general public who'd like to learn about it? So
1: so we we work with uh, the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals quite um, closely and uh, one of the things we've been working with them on is actually getting into the curricular in universities, the co-op business model, and including that in business degrees. So when people are learning, you know, corpse law and and understanding that, okay, well, there's, you know, various types of shareholder-owned businesses or, you know, or charities and all that sort of stuff, there's actually this thing called cooperatives and it's another option. And (laughs) it's very similar, but it has slightly different tendencies. So, uh, yes, we're we're actively working. Um, There was a a Senate um, inquiry last year that looked into the cooperative and mutuals kind of world, um, handed out a bunch of different recommendations, and one of those recommendations is for education. And I guess it's a
0: it's a growing sector at the moment,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it, it, the sector is is certainly um, in a bit of a resurgence. Um, it's there to solve problems in society, and I would argue that um, maybe society for all, for a fair while in recent history is, has moved away from cooperatives because you know a hundred years ago, hundred fifty years ago, they were quite popular and and they were quite there and I guess we've had you know a lot of larger businesses sort of establish themselves and and grow and people have been you know maybe feeling a bit uh, disenfranchised or disconnected with some of those businesses or or not aligned with you know the the mega profits that some of them are choosing to make and a cooperative is kind of an answer to that because the goals are different yet you're still getting similar services.
0: Mm, I guess one of the One of the things in history that led to that sort of collapse of of cooperatives and mutuals in the 80s and 90s was a structural, structural, I guess they just missed it, you know, it was a structural gap where um, they could essentially, if enough of the members voted to sell the business, they could. Um, And yeah people offered them astronomical prices they didn't have the, the sort of emotional connection to the co-op to yeah. to want to keep it and uh yeah a lot of them got sold it was called carpet bagging <laughs> so and that decimated is there anything in the co-op to sort of head that sort of thing off and prevent yeah. that
1: so, so our constitution prevents um liquidation of the co-op and returning revenue to members so if the co-op decided to wind up for whatever reason, we actually have to give any surplus revenue. So after you've sold everything, whatever's left, um, that actually has to be given to a like-minded organisation. So it's in our constitution. Now, if all the members chose to vote to change the constitution, that's a pretty big hurdle. And then they would have to wind up the co-op. There's, there's a lot of hurdles in the way for to prevent that from happening, and, and it really does guarantee that the organisation exists for the benefit of the members um, in perpetuity, and it, it really can't be corrupted on those bases.
0: About medical research, you you do... Some sort of data collection, which is involved yeah. with medical research already, don't you? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and this is an area where we will, we will continually um, expand our focus. But uh, naturally, given we you know we have patient records for over thirty-three thousand people in Canberra, um, that's a that's a very large database of of uh, information. Now, what we can do is we can look at um, at various symptoms that people have, and not on an individual basis, but as a cohort, and we can identify what um, symptoms people have before they get sick, and we can look at people who you know have developed diseases and what they did before they had developed diseases we can actually use that information to pre-treat individuals or to you know to um, contact certain groups of individuals and offer them preventative treatments so we actually do this now we we uh, send out targeted communications towards different cohorts where we think we can intervene and help them so either manage a disease or prevent a disease uh, and what you'll find is as we keep getting bigger and the database gets bigger, we get the ability to, to use far more detailed analytics to prevent disease and make a far bigger impact.
0: How does our health system stack up internationally? I mean, this is, I guess it's very complementary what, what you're doing to the, the system we've got already. And how are we going sort of on an international sort of scale? Yeah.
1: Well, Australia's very fortunate. We've got a, a very good health system. Um, you know, Medicare in, in many respects is the envy of the world. Um, you know our, our colleagues in Canada and the UK have similar systems and, and you know there's some attributes which you could subjectively argue may be a little bit better but there's many things that are also maybe a little bit worse so on a balance um, we're, we're very well positioned
0: is there anything I mean we've got the the single payer system here yeah. which is sort of a, a bulwark a bulwark against the, the the corporate monopolies on drug production how does that work
1: Oh, well, it, it's a really interesting thing. So, so we have uh, government as the single payer associated with Medicare. And uh, at present, uh, health insurers don't have the ability to, to intervene in that primary health care space, you know, certainly GPs. Um now there's many arguments whether that's a good thing and a bad thing, and, and you know like we can we can get into a whole you know a whole other program on on the economics of, of how that could work and where's the benefits <laughs> and the pitfalls. Um, but you know in, in fundamentals it's actually a pretty good robust system we have. Now there's always areas for improvement. You know it could always use more money and more expenditure. Um, I'm sure the government would argue that uh, they would also love more money so they can actually spend more. But they're they're dealing with you know the issues of uh, you know a finite pool of of money and you know where does that come from? It's the Taxes, so mm-hmm. um, it's it's a it's a difficult situation. But all in all, I think we we should be pretty um, pretty fortunate, or you know certainly realize that we're pretty fortunate with the system we've got, um, and with the right organisations utilising it in the right way, we can actually extract more out of the existing expenditure. Um, and the cooperative model is one way to do that because yeah. we don't take a dividend. The money gets you know you get more utilisation of the same money, which means you're going to get a larger return on it, which is a good thing for the system.
0: Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. I'll put it to you, and you can correct my wrong bits. <laughs> that the single payer system is essentially the government legislating that it is the only entity that that can buy the drugs off the big drug companies in the country, and then it will resell them at a, a set price to
1: yeah. So the PBS people uh, who need to buy them. Yeah. So so if we, we so if you want to focus on the um, yeah the the PBS system. Um, it's, it's worked very well in order to ensure that medicines are available to people at a price that they can realistically afford. Um, it's a very expensive system for the government to run on the basis that they're effectively wearing the cost differential between what the company wants to charge and what they agree to sell it to the government for and then what is obviously on-sold to the individual. Um, and in some instances, that's that's many tens of thousands of dollars per dose. In weeks. Um, yeah, so... It's a very important safety net because it would mean, if that didn't exist, that some individuals would face you know, um, bills for medications that could easily run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for certain treatments, and people shouldn't have to decide whether they want to live or whether they want to eat. It's, it's not, a, not a really good parallel. So it's a fundamental safety in society for you know, um, maintaining um, uh, people's ability to access certain medicines.
0: Yeah, right. So how could a medicine cost tens of thousands of dollars per dose? What's going on with that?
1: Well, so this comes down to the the drug companies and um and their ability to sell medicines at a at a given price. Now, they would argue that they spend billions of dollars research and development and production of this, and then they get a, a patent on that for a, a number of years, which gives them the exclusive rights to to sell that medicine so no one can copy it, they protect it. Now, they would argue that they want to sell it for whatever they're charging on the basis that they want to recover their initial investment, and, and maybe they spent a billion dollars developing it, and then they want to get a return in addition to what they spent, so you know, if they want, um, if they could have put their billion dollars in the bank, they want to receive, you know, say three percent or ten percent or whatever on top of that, and they're looking to recoup that over a period of years before another company can copy it and make a generic product. That's the argument they will run. Now, um, the cost to develop medicines is incredibly high, and it's getting higher um, as they get more complicated. You know, as we start to get into personal medicines, it's unlikely this will change. Um, how society affords some of these medicines is an interesting um, policy discussion and um, uh, I'm sure the Minister for Health would have uh, some very interesting things to say.
0: Yeah, right. I think maybe Ecuador or perhaps Bolivia has sort of gone rogue in the international trade system and allowed companies within their country to just ignore that whole patent system and and develop generic drugs at, at a an astronomically lower price than they're being sold for. So you, Would you encourage the Australian government to have a crack at that?
1: Uh, well, if we were encouraging the, the Australian government to, I guess, um, facilitate patent infringement, um, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's an interesting thing because naturally that would breach a bunch of our, our trade agreements. Mm. Um, and similarly, if you're on the receiving end of that, so um, if you've put all your... How do we, we phrase it? <laughs> if, if you've put all your work into becoming a lawyer... And um, you've spent, say, a hundred thousand dollars in degree and fifteen years of training, and you can produce really beautiful documents that are the accumulation of all that money and all that expenditure. And then someone just goes, "Oh, but it's a piece of paper." Well, it is a piece of paper, but it's fifteen years worth of time and you know hundred thousand dollars worth of effort, and, you know, expenditure to get that piece of paper. Well, that paper's worth more than more than just the piece of paper. If someone steals it. Yeah, they're just stealing a piece of paper, but they're actually stealing all that investment that's gone into it. Now, the economic argument would be that if someone's just going to take that, so they're going to take the piece of paper or they're going to take the drug and copy it, where's the incentive for a company to spend a billion dollars or you know hundreds of millions of dollars in developing something when it's just going to get stolen? Which means the companies won't do it, so we won't actually have the drugs which are required. So it's not a it's not a good outcome in saying that okay we'll just let someone take it and copy it because it actually probably destroys the system that created it. But does the drug cost too much? Well, if society can't afford it, then yes. So maybe we need to reinvent the problem and go back to first principles on how do we do this research? How do we actually achieve, um, you know, new developments and new discoveries and new, you know, new medications at a maybe that are a more sustainable level? Maybe that's part of the, you know, the IP, um, you know, laws and, and looking at how we review those and streamline them Um you know, how, how do we achieve this in the best possible way? Yeah, it's quite a conundrum, isn't it? I guess you've got to look
0: at the, the quality of the piece of paper. I mean, if it's a slavery contract, maybe you do want to tear it up and put the lawyer out of business. <laughs> maybe that's the case. Yeah, OK. Things like the single-payer system that we've got and the Medicare system that we've got, they're, they're massive sort of institutions which, which enable our health care to be fairly accessible. Are there other sort of things? I mean, like there's a phenomenon of technological leapfrogging like in in africa there's many countries where there's a massive mobile phone network but they've just jumped over the fixed line yeah expense and, and just gone for mobiles are there things that a new system like a cooperative healthcare system can can leapfrog and just
1: well i, I think this is this dinosaurs
0: is, in the old system
1: yeah I guess. so so i think this is where all, all organizations all businesses cooperatives included um, and maybe cooperatives have a, a maybe a, a bigger imperative to do things that don't have a necessarily a financial return. But uh, all organisations can utilise new technologies to deliver services. And, you know, in the health space, um, there is the real possibility of using mobile phones to, to deliver into remote and regional Australia um, services that otherwise haven't been able to be delivered um, now, there's certain limitations to achieving that. Obviously, we've got to develop the technology. We've got to make sure that um, there's the ability um, to, to fund that, be it you know, through the private in, you know, individuals or um, for the government to adapt the Medicare system to support um, you know, telehealth and, re- and remote services. Um, but these are all things that we can work uh, in partnership with players in the industry, the government, to utilise new technologies and really explore what we can achieve. Um, the launch of mbn uh, second SkyMaster satellite um, brings some interesting opportunities because, in theory, at least, we should have good connectivity into very remote areas of the country, um, and that allows organisations like the National Health Co-op to work out how we utilise those services, how we leverage them, and how, you know, how do we provide specialist services in the middle of an Aboriginal community where, realistically, no specialist is ever going to choose to travel, and. This provides opportunities to achieve that outcome, to to break down those barriers. And uh, yeah, if we work with the government and work with other partners to achieve that, there's some very large um, benefits that can be realised for not a lot of outlay. So I suppose in that sort of situation, you could
0: consider a nice air-conditioned, well-fitted out bus clinic or something, which could just constantly do the rounds or something.
1: Yeah, or or you could uh, see your doctor on your phone.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Why not, eh? Yeah, you could get a special phone in a community with a little stethoscope that comes out of it. (laughs) Yeah. So gender balance i mean in in organizations in general especially in business that the gender balance in in the management and in the boards is, is often weighted very heavily to the uh, to the male side of thing and it's just an, an institutional thing that's well known how, how do cooperatives generally try and address that
1: yeah it's a really difficult situation in um, well in every business and and cooperatives aren't uh, fundamentally any different to any other business in that respect um, cooperatives have a limiting factor with um, uh, board representation and uh, management, with the basis that um, our board representation comes from our membership. And you can only select people to go onto the board who put their hand up to go on the board. <laughs> now, you can encourage people, and we actively try and do that, but we have a situation, um, certainly at present, where, where we have a male bent domination of the board. Now, it's something we're actively trying to to address but we you know we have to encourage the right females with the right skills in order to put their hand up and actually nominate for those positions and empower them to to make their contribution it's something society needs to be aware of and and you know collectively work together to solve
0: yeah yeah i guess when i was going through electrical training there was one one lady in each class if that yeah and so there's also a built-in sort of balance in the trade so i guess that's similar in in medicine is it
1: uh well medicine's actually pretty good so if uh, you look at our doctors it's actually pretty close to 50 50 with yeah, fe- right. female versus male mm-hmm. um and most of our um actually if you look at all our clinicians we're probably slightly more female dominated than we are male um when it comes into the business kind of side of things it's it's a little bit the other way okay um but certainly at least in the the service delivery aspects um, we're making really good strides to to get a good balance um and that's what we strive for the entire organization Providing
0: training for people within the organisation to be able to step up in the future and oh,
1: of course, just, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the best way f- uh, for any organisation to operate is empower its existing staff to continue through the ranks and and lead the organisation. Um, Where we're not uh, any different to any uh, organisation that would pride itself on its ability to empower its staff, and uh, and certainly that's something we care about.
0: So you, you've mentioned feedback before, and how, how can people sort of. Working on the ground, or, or people who are, who are customers within the organisation, oh, customer owners, I guess yeah. you'd call them. How how do they influence what happens? Is there like a suggestions box, or
1: <laughs> well, the the easiest way for them to do it is either jump on our website and mm-hmm. uh, and fill out the feedback form that's there, um, or they could pop into any one of our clinics and uh, and ask for a copy of the feedback form and uh, and fill it out and provide it right there on the spot. They can give us a call and do the same thing. There's a lot of different channels for people to provide feedback. Um, you know, whether it's positive or negative or suggestions, um, that is certainly um, something that uh, we encourage people to do and we listen to and take very seriously. Yeah, and do you reckon it's a surprise that that
0: the medical sort of sphere is actually doing this pioneering work? I mean, doctors do seem to be at the forefront of a lot of campaign sort of things. There's the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and Doctors for Refugees and Doctors for the Environment and Medicine Sands Frontier and you could go on. Do you you reckon it's...
1: Well, different. well. Th- so the National Health Co-op came out of the community, mm. and so it wasn't something that was doctor initiated. It was something that the community initiated. Now we've worked with you know a number of doctors over the years. We've got uh, thirty-eight doctors on staff at the moment, and you know those doctors are aligned with the philosophy of the organisation and they believe in the mission and the you know the vision of what we're trying to achieve. Um, but fundamentally, it it, um, it doesn't, I guess, impact um, the the vision of the organisation that that they're, they're doing that because they, they, I guess they were not the driving force behind it per se, but they're now part of the, the process to make sure that it is successful in providing that quality care and accessibility at, a, at an affordable price point.
0: We'll move on now to uh, to preventative health care. And I'm afraid we've only got a little over 10 minutes left to cover it in. That's right. <laughs> so we won't get too far, but um, preventative health care, it's, it's really interesting. You've, you've you've covered already that it's I guess the normal healthcare is sort of reactive to any troubles that we we might get in a bodily fashion and I guess in in business you can get trapped in a situation where you're just reacting to problems all the time and mm. you don't get really the chance to sit back and strategize and have a look. Is that common in the healthcare field? Well, well,
1: healthcare, as far as, a, like, from a business perspective, is, is very similar to every other business. It has the same pitfalls and, and uh, limitations. Um, what we're doing, though, is we're trying to be a bit more proactive with um, providing education to our members, but also to broader society. So um, at least every month, and it's a bit more frequent than that, we, we run education sessions. Um, And those sessions are there on a given topic to provide individuals with information. So it might be about heart disease or mental health or Alzheimer's or, you know, whatever have you. Um, And the idea is that we're trying to empower our consumers to understand what symptoms are, you know, how to manage certain diseases. If they're concerned about, you know, their heart health, then come along and learn about that. And that's going to empower them to start looking after themselves, to talk to their doctor, to open up a, a bit of a dialogue about things that they should and should not maybe do. Um, so we're, we're working pretty hard to make sure that we're, we're spreading as much information as possible and uh, educating um, society. Now, the other side of that is uh, using the analytics that we're doing on, a, on our data set to make sure that we're providing um, information to the right people at the right times to prevent issues that they might develop or to manage you know, diseases that they might have in the best possible way to maximise the benefit to them. So I guess it's a really two-sided thing. One's broad education, one's specific intervention. Um, And I guess the the larger we are and the, the bigger we get, the more our ability is to do both of those things. Hmm. And what does it cost
0: to do sort of prevention as related, I guess, to what it might cost to react to
1: what you've yeah, it's,
0: prevented by doing that? What's the return on the investment?
1: It's it's a really hard thing to work out your, your return on investment on um, your, your expenditure associated with... Um, prevention because it's hard to measure what people don't have it, is, it so, is so if we prevent someone from getting an amputation it's hard to prove that we ever prevented them from not getting because you're looking at an alternate world that You've made not exist. Right. So you there's, can't there's, just look over into the parallel universe, can you? Precisely. So um, there's some work that we'll we'll have to do, and you know we're, we're looking to partner with some some hopefully some really good statisticians um, and data analysts to help explore those, and we can get into the economics of you know return on investment given a, a certain amount of spend. Um, but at, at some degree, it's it's uh, it's a lot of guesswork, and um, you've got to get the confidence intervals intervals right to ensure that it's actually robust enough to talk about.
0: Now you mentioned the data analysis side of things. You're doing some data analysis. We nearly got onto it before. How, how what's the the function of data analysis in a health
1: context? Sure. So so it's it's looking at um, a number of um, individuals, so a population of you know, well, in our case, thirty three thousand, and and trying to identify what symptoms they all have and what are some of the correlating factors so is it location where they live maybe we over overlay that with um, you know demographic information so such as the stuff that you collect in the censuses, and trying to work out okay well if they work in these kind of professions here's the likely things that they're, they're exposed to maybe so we can actually identify people that might not have these symptoms but are likely to get them based on broad demographics and be able to pre-treat them or provide them with information so they're aware that they're likely to develop these things based on the experience of all these other people. So that's it in kind of a nutshell. It's really using just broad analytics across a big database to try and see trends that otherwise aren't apparent on an individual level.
0: Yeah, so are are other groups out there, other medical groups doing a similar thing as well?
1: Yeah, people are doing things to a various level. Mm -hmm. Um, Our goal will be to, to step up the sophistication quite a lot. Um, And we have the ability to do this because we we currently have a reasonably large data set. Like I said, there's sort of over Mm -hmm. 33,000 patients. As we continue to grow, our ability to find trends that are hard to see in a small data set increases. So we have the ability to do far more um, beneficial work in that space. And as a cooperative, we can also get to the point where we can release high-level data that just talks about trends... So other organisations can pick that research up and use it and complement it with their own data, which they would never otherwise be able to do. Mm. And because we don't need to make money out of doing this, we can provide it for free. Yeah,
0: right. So that sort of information would be uh, fairly pricey, I imagine, on the market. If you were doing some sort of epidemiology about maybe the, the toxic dump that the suburb was built on or something, so, so you might not be able to afford Yeah,
1: so if you were going to commission primary research to achieve those outcomes, it would be very, very expensive and and often prohibitively so. So just by the very fact that we collect this data in order to provide healthcare means we can do things that benefit the entire cohort, protects the individual data perfectly because an individual's data in this context isn't the main primary um, beneficiary, it's the the group. And then, um, yeah, we provide a benefit to everyone.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, that's another little... Side benefit, isn't it? Yeah.
1: it? It has the potential to deliver a bigger impact to society than the primary health care. So I guess there's other things. I mean, health is such a
0: big field. There's so many things that influence our health. And in a prevention context, I guess, there's an interesting link between climate change and health. Um, so we've, we've presently got a, a very high-carbon lifestyle, you know. We're, we're sedentary and breathe in all these fumes. If, if we were to have a very low-carbon lifestyle... What effects do you reckon that might have on on the the overall general health of the
1: public. Well, so this is obviously where we, we would want to um, undertake pretty good research to, mm. to, you know, properly understand this, because mm. uh, the worst thing to do whenever we're trying to make decisions about what's good or bad is to, to use like a gut feel or, or to, you know, kind of a guess. So, you know, naturally we, we'd want to be um, as an organisation looking at, uh, you know, what studies are, are going on and what they're indicating. But, you know, there's certainly um, there's some indication that people's diet and what they're eating and, you know, if, if maybe they're eating more of a vegetarian kind of diet that has particular health benefits now that aligns with a you know a lower carbon existence um but it's more that that actual tangible action that an individual is taking and how that impacts on their health is i guess what we'd be particularly concerned about Mm. its alignment with other things is um, is interesting but um, not necessarily the primary factor so you've mentioned diet and why is food important to health Oh, well, I, I would love to, to to get one of my dietitians out and uh, and explain that. Well, I think maybe that... we can do that in the future. <laughs> um, but but diets diets incredibly important, obviously. So you know what fuel people put into their bodies is you know is, is everything. If uh, you put bad fuel in, you you know you you don't uh, run efficiently. Um, you will impact your sleeping uh, abilities, you'll impact your energy levels, you'll um, increase your likelihood of developing diseases. The, the list goes on. So, um, yeah, I think it's incredibly important that uh, people consider how to eat healthily. Um, this is why we make dietitians available. Um, so, uh, if people are ever uh, want to understand how to eat better, um, I'd encourage them to attend one of our classes on healthy eating or make an appointment with our dietitian. Um, it's a great way to really improve uh, people's health without a lot of effort either. Yeah, well, I guess
0: it uh, comes back to the the old thing we keep coming back to on this show, which is sort of healthy soil equals sort of healthy plants, which equals healthy stock, and we're part of the stock. So
1: Ab- absolutely, yeah. the, the whole cycle. So um, yeah, what you put in is directly correlated to what you, what you get out.
0: So if if say a co-op was was starting up, which was providing a whole lot of healthy food directly to the, your customers. You, you've made an arrangement with the Service One mob, which is mutually beneficial to people's health and to, I guess, their financial uh, health there. Um, would you consider making more sort of...? Oh,
1: of course, yes. So we're always looking to work with like-minded organisations that achieve benefit for our, our customers. Now, they may be cooperatives, they may not be, mm-hmm. but the, the very fact is that, yeah, we, we care about our, our members and we want to work with organisations that achieve a better outcome for society generally. Um, so if, if such an organisation exists and its uh, it, its motivations are pure and it, it's actually <laughs> there for the, the benefit of individuals, then, yeah, of course, we'd be willing to have discussions with them and work out how we can work together. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We've run out of time. Ah, oh, well, look, it's been a really great opportunity to explain the model and, and hopefully uh, answer a few of your questions. Um, and we'd encourage people to, you know, check out the, the National Health Co-op, visit our website, you know, follow us on Twitter, Facebook. And, um, and yeah, certainly come along and uh, and live a healthier lifestyle.
0: Thank you very much, Blake Wilson from the National
1: Health Co-op. No worries. Thanks so much. A, Appreciate uh, it.
0: A really exciting development. Good on you. And, and more power to your arm, as they say in pub names and things. We'll catch you later. Thanks, mate.